We're taking this month to prepare for Easter, and we've uh, decided to, to, to name this month. We're doing a series of sermons, and we're calling it It's Time. And uh, Pastor Steve started off last week by talking about uh, the fact that it's time for us to embrace our identity. And, uh, you know, uh, Pastor Bowen has been sharing for a number of weeks on the kingdom, and this feels like a very appropriate uh, series to do after, after uh, having that, that sermon series for a while, talking about the fact that the kingdom of God lives in us. Amen. And we are children of the king, that we are, we are part of God's family because of what Jesus did for us. And so we want to take this month to talk about what that means for us and how we live that out in our practical lives, in our daily lives. And uh, today I want to talk to you about the fact that I believe that it is time to thrive. It is time for the church of God to thrive. We know that we are uh, God's children. We know that the kingdom of God lives in us. So it is, it's, it's imperative for us as believers to thrive. It, it's imperative for us to thrive for ourselves so that our life can be uh, uh, something that will encourage and bless others. But it's, and it's, it's, a, it's a, a thing for us to thrive so that we can share the love of God with others that are in our life that God will put in our circle. And, you know, the, the word thrive means to flourish or to prosper. To flourish or to prosper. Now, we all want to flourish. Amen? Everybody wants to flourish. Everybody wants to prosper. And when you, when you see that word prosper, a lot of us, our minds might go to the verse in Jeremiah 29, 11. I want, to, I want to read that verse, very, very popular verse. And it says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, which also could mean thrive, plans for you to thrive and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. So let me see your hands. How many in this room, this is your, it's in the top five of your favorite verses in all the Bible. How many? A whole bunch of us. We love this verse. It's quoted. It's been embroidered on stuff. It's been put on bumper stickers. It's, it's been our screensaver. We absolutely love this verse. We've all clung to this verse in our life because nothing makes us happier than to, to, to be able to cling to hope and know that God, he's for us and not against us. Amen. It's so good to know the promises of God, that, who he is. And, and if, if he's telling us that, that his plans for us are to prosper, that means that he wants us to flourish, that he wants us to thrive. Uh, in other words, life is good. Life should be good for us as believers, amen? It should be good. Does it mean everything's going to always go good and go well the way we want it to? Absolutely not. In fact, Jesus promises us that we're going to have trouble in this world. But what he did was to come to, break the, to defeat the works of the enemy so that he, he has overcome the world. And we can take heart in that according to his word. But we are called to flourish. We're called to thrive. But the, the thing about this verse in Jeremiah 29, 11, a lot of times we don't, we don't look at it in its context. Uh, it's very easy. I'm, I'm guilty of it too. I've gone to Jeremiah 29 and went right to verse 11 because that's what I needed for that day. But if you look at it in the context of it, it's actually pretty amazing because, you know, I, I, when I do my Bible reading, I'm typically reading through the Old and the New Testament at the same time. And uh, I'm reading through Jeremiah right now. And it was about a week and a half ago that I read Jeremiah 29. And I, I read it for the first time in this light that I've ever read it in that I saw more of the context of what, what God was doing in this verse. See, he he had, uh, Jeremiah was the prophet of Israel at that time. You know, back in the day, God, God didn't necessarily speak to the individuals. You know, like we can go into the throne room of God today and we could pray and we could talk to God and, and he converses with us. That's what prayer is. But back then, there, there wasn't that luxury. You know, when, when, the, when the temple was there, the only person that could go into the presence of God, into the Holy of Holies, was the high priest. And he could only do that once a year. And it was a very fearful, scary thing. And so they counted, the people counted on a prophet of God to tell them what God was saying. And what God wanted from them. And, but if we look earlier in this chapter, I'm gonna, I want to read to you 
from verses 4 through 7 in Jeremiah 29. So I I could set up what's going on here. So it says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So this is the word of the Lord to the people that are in, in Babylon. He says, Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So Jeremiah, this, this chapter in Jeremiah is talking about the Israelites being in a situation that is less than desirable. And uh, so to give you some context, the Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he had come into Jerusalem. He had overtaken the city, captured the city of Jerusalem. And he took what was commonplace back then was when they, when they took an area like that, they would take the people from that city and actually bring them back to their place. So what he did was he, instead of just going in and killing everybody, he actually grabbed them and brought them back to his city because he thought that they could actually help his city flourish. They could build up the city and do things that would help it. And so that's what he did in this situation. He took the children of Israel and brought them to this city, Babylon, was, and they were completely displaced. They were away from their home. You know, they had worked their whole lives building their houses there and, and planting crops and growing their cattle, their livestock, and growing their families and expanding their territories. And all of a sudden, all that was taken away, and they were taken to Babylon. And what was happening was false prophets were coming to the children of Israel and saying, hey, don't worry about it. What God says is that he's going to rescue you. Just sit tight. He's going to rescue you. You don't have to worry about this. And it's not going to be long. God's going to take you. Come get you. And what Jeremiah is saying here. And what he says earlier in this chapter is do not believe the words of these false prophets because they are saying stuff just to tickle your ears. How many of you know there's, there's people that even stand on a stage in a church that say stuff just to tickle your ears? But we really need to hear the truth, don't we? The truth of God is what's important to us. So Jeremiah is saying don't believe these lies because actually God's not going to rescue you right now. In fact, in Jeremiah 25, he tells them that you're going to be in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. That's the word of God. And if you notice that verse I read in, I think, verse 4 or 5, it actually says that God put, took them into exile. This was God's plan for them at that time because of their rebellion and some of the things that they had done. But, but Jeremiah is saying, you're not going to be rescued right away. But this is the good news. He says, very clearly, he says, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry, give your kids in marriage, have kids, expand. And then he says, I want you to increase and not decrease. So what he's saying here is basically you might be in a situation you don't like. You might be displaced and not in a a place where you're really meant to be. You're not in the homeland. You're not in the the city of David, the the place that you're, you're meant to thrive. You might be in a different situation where everything has been taken from you. But what I'm telling you today is that you can thrive in that situation. You can thrive. I've called you to thrive in it. I've called you to build homes and to produce, to produce and to expand and to grow and to increase and not decrease. What a wonderful, wonderful word from God through the scriptures. Where he says, you know, he's not always going to rescue us immediately. You know, if you've been a believer for any amount of time, you know that being a Christian doesn't necessarily mean all your troubles go away. In fact, sometimes being a Christian brings more trouble on you. Amen? But what God is saying is, I may not rescue you right away because that may not be what I want for you at at this moment. But what I am telling you is that no matter what your situation is, no matter how bad it gets, you can thrive in this situation if you would hear and listen to my words that I'm speaking to you. I'm giving you the tools to be able to thrive in a place that you would not want to be or where you don't even really belong. It's not even your home. 
Now, that can refer to anything in our life. It can refer to our finances. It can refer to relationships, our job. Maybe you're in a job, you just, you've been begging God to give you a new job. Why won't he answer this prayer? I'm, I'm doing everything I know to be a good Christian boy, and yet he can't, I can't get him to do what I want him to do. And God's saying, maybe I'm not going to move you right away. Maybe I want, you to, want to use you in that situation there to be a blessing to somebody. Maybe it's not what you would want, but maybe I need you there. Maybe I put you there for a reason. And maybe I'm going to leave you there until you learn how to thrive in that situation. Because that's what he wants for us. The beauty is no matter what situation we're in, we don't ever have to doubt the fact that his plan for us is that we would increase and not decrease. And that's a promise that I can hang on to. That makes me say, whatever I'm going through, I can go through it with joy because I know that God is is with me and he's working in this situation to bring me back into the promised land that he originally called me to. So what I want to do today is I want to talk about the how in that. Um, And then I want to uh, talk about the tools that God gives us and I want to finish up by giving you some of the, the hindrances that I think get in the way of us really being able to thrive in life. Because, uh, because you know, God has set us up. He's given us the tools to thrive. We, we know that. If you've been here this year over the last seven, eight weeks, you know, Pastor Bowen talked about the kingdom of God. That's all ours. The kingdom of God in us. The, the, the works of Jesus that he did on the cross to defeat the enemy. That's all ours. And for us to live a life of thriving, it's ours. But we have to know how to use those tools that God gives us. Because like I said before, a minute ago, being a Christian doesn't make you all of a sudden just have all those, those tools and, have to, and know how to use them and be able to thrive and, and succeed in life the way God would want you to. You know, I, I was, uh, in my younger years, I, I did a lot of carpentry. You know, I got into carpentry when I was young. My dad was a carpenter when I was a kid and I was using chop saws and nail guns and stuff at a pretty young age. And uh, I, I had a lot of, I, well, I still have some of them, but I had a lot of tools that were really, really helpful to help me make uh, nice stuff out of wood. And... Uh, but, but I had to learn how to use those tools. You know, just having a nice table saw and chop saw and drills and nail guns, all the nicest state-of-the-art equipment sitting in my garage doesn't all of a sudden make a beautiful china cabinet appear in my dining room, right? I have to know how to use those and I have to do the work that it takes to, to make those tools do what they were designed to do. In fact, I remember when I was, I think I was about 15, was one of the first times I ever used a nail gun. I was helping my uncle uh, frame in a, a room addition, and I was shooting down the floor with a nail gun, and I thought I was so cool. I was popping nails in and loved the power of that gun, you know, how it just, boom, it shoots a nail all the way in. And I thought I was so neat and got a little arrogant with it. And, uh, you know, you leave your finger on the trigger and you just drop it, and it, as soon as that plunger hits, it pops a nail through. But you have to be careful when you're not nailing something that you take the finger off that trigger. Because I left it on the trigger, and I accidentally came back, and I kicked it with my heel, and I, I made sure that my pants would never leave my heel. I nailed them in there real good. The nail went all the way in. And uh, I looked pretty silly because I was hopping around. And I went over to my uncle. I said, um, I have a little problem. And, uh, and he saw it. Needless to say, we shot to the ER and the, we got in the ER. The doctor came in and he looks at me. First thing he says, ah, you left your finger on the trigger, didn't you? <laughs> and uh, needless to say, I felt pretty silly. But I did not do that again. I learned to take my finger off that trigger when I'm not using it. And... Uh, Shot myself plenty of times with a nail gun, but that was usually because we'd be messing around and having nail gun fights. But that's a different story for a different day. And so, but it was so important that we learn how to use those tools God gives us, right? It's the same thing in our Christian walk. Like I said, just when you get saved, it doesn't all of a sudden make you know how to, how to thrive in life and how to walk through life. And what it does is, as we as Christians, if we don't know how to use what God has given us, what happens to us, church, is that we, we become a hindrance to the world really even giving their hearts to Jesus. Because the world sees us and they see, okay, well, you say you're a Christian, but you're not any better than me. You're not thriving in life any better than I am. 
I see you complaining and down all the time and, and uh, you're, you're in debt up to your eyeballs. You are, uh, you know, the first sign of trouble you had with your spouse, you took off and left her and got a divorce. Like, I, I don't see you thriving in any way, so why would I want what you have? And we as Christians, we actually hinder the gospel when we are not thriving in our life. And that's a big deal for us. That should break our hearts to know that, that my life would cause somebody to not want to give their heart to Jesus. Because it's designed that it would be the exact opposite of that. The Bible tell, talks about us, about us giving, living our lives for Jesus and that others will see it and it will cause them to glorify our Father in heaven. That's what he wants for us. But we can't just do it because we're a Christian and we come to church on a Sunday. It's not enough. It won't, we won't learn how to thrive by spending an hour a week in a church. This is a beautiful thing. I'm glad we're here. This is, this is my favorite time of the week. But, it, but there's, there's tools that God gives us that we need to use. So I want to I talk to you about those tools just for a second. And I want to spend the majority of my time on the, the hindrances. But what are the tools? Well, the simple, is, the simple answer is the first tool is the truth of God's word. Okay? We have the word of God. This is such a beautiful thing for us that we as American Christians, and I'm guilty of it too, take it for granted all the time. There's people in communist countries and in countries that are opposed to the gospel that risk their life every day to read this thing. And we can pull it out wherever we want and read it. And the worst that something's going to happen is someone's going to chuckle at us. But for so many of us, this thing sits on our coffee table or at our end table or, or on our desk or in our car and we barely touch it. And I'm here to tell you today, church, if the only time you read scripture is when it's up on this big lit up wall back here, you're not getting enough. You're just not getting enough. This, this thing, the, the word itself tells us that the word is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. This is not like reading any other thing you'll ever read. This isn't like reading an article, a Christian article, a Christian book. It's not like anything like that. Those things are good to read too. But when you read this, you're literally feeding your spirit. Literally. It's going in you and it's changing you. And it's causing, you to, it's causing your heart to turn towards God. There's times you read it and you feel like, you know, you read Leviticus, you go, I don't even know what that means. And that's okay. That's okay. Because your spirit is still being fed by it. And, you know, if you stay in the word, you'll see at times stuff will come out of your mouth. You're like, whoa, where did that come from? I didn't even know I knew that. You start to kind of pat yourself on the back, you know. But that's what this is. That's just one of the tools that God gives us. But if it's, it, it can't just sit on a table and you can't just stare at it and expect it to get inside of you, you know. It's, a, it's an effort we must make to work to read it. We should be reading it every day. I'm to the point in my life where if I do miss a day because it's just something crazy is going on and I can't read it, I miss it. I miss it. It's not a thing of being guilty, like, oh, God's like, oh, you didn't read your Bible today. It's nothing like that. It's that I know I need this for my nourishment. And we should be, we should be loving and thriving in reading the Word of God. Amen. Amen. The second one is prayer. Um, you know, you, you can preach, a, you can preach a, a year-long series on prayer and the importance of prayer. You guys know that. It's not anything new to you. But let me just, as a reminder today, encourage you. That, uh, that how important prayer is in our lives. I, I say it all the time. Prayer is the most talked about and least practiced principle in Christendom. We can talk about prayer all day. When somebody asks you to pray for them, you say, sure, I'll pray for you. And you walk away and you never pray for them. I try to get to where when people ask me to pray for them, I do it right there. Because if I don't, I'll probably forget. And, uh, but but it's, it's, such a, it's such a vital thing in our life. There's something about praying, coming to God. And like I said, in the Old Testament, people couldn't do that. 
Like, you just couldn't have a conversation with God like you can after, since Jesus came and paid the price for us and actually washed us clean so that we could actually come into his presence. Before, we couldn't come into his presence because we weren't clean. And now we're clean. We're washed white as snow because of what Jesus did. And we have that access to come into the throne room of God. And I just think, you know, with relationships, like if I only talked to my wife for an hour on Sunday mornings, she probably wouldn't hang around very long, you know? But, and I'm not saying that, that God won't hang around if we don't pray. That's how wonderful he is and how gracious he is to us. But he desires that with us, but he's not going to force it. But there's something about when we pray, when we get alone with God, when we get on our knees and we get with God and we just talk to him and, and we, we give ourselves to him, what happens is our heart starts to, we start to see the heart of God more in our own life. And it starts to change us from the inside. Like it literally changes us. It, it causes us to have more of the mind of Christ, which is what he wants us to have. So we, we should be taking advantage of that, that opportunity that we have to come into his throne room at any time. 24-7, 365, we have access to the throne room of God to see the King of Kings. Amen. So the next one then, then lastly, is the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is, is the, the agent that God gives us to be able to live this life and to thrive in this life and to walk in a way that honors God. Pastor Bowen mentioned a couple weeks ago in Romans 14, it says the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. That's what I want in my life. I'm sure you guys do too. And when we're in the Holy Ghost, there's righteousness, peace, and joy that is in our life. That's what I want. We want peace and joy. That's how we thrive in life. When we have that peace and joy that we can't explain, it doesn't say the kingdom of God is that the Holy Ghost is going to make everything perfect in your life. It says you're going to have peace and joy and you're going to have it in spite of the stuff that's going on in your life. And that's a beautiful thing. Look at, look at what Paul said in Romans 8, verses 5 to 6. Watch this. It says, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind of the sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. Anybody here want their mind to be controlled by the spirit? Amen. We all do. That's not an easy thing though. It's not just a matter of saying, okay, God, so Holy Spirit, you have my mind, go. It's not that simple, is it? Because we probably tried that. I, I tried sometimes and, and I hope that I'm hoping that God will just all of a sudden change my mind and everything that's in there that's junk will just go, but it doesn't. But what he does is he gives us the ability to make wise choices. That's what the Holy Spirit does in our life. He, he helps us to make wise choices in our life to live in such a way that we will thrive. Because let's be honest, a lot of the junk we go through in our life is because of bad choices we've made. And I'm not here to condemn anybody. We all make bad choices. That's why we need the grace of God. Praise God. That's why his, his grace, his, his, uh, uh, his mercies are new every single morning. There's a reason for that. It's not once a year. It's not even once a day. It's every second of every day that we need his mercy. It's poured out on us. But the spirit, when we set our minds on the spirit, he gives us wisdom to make good choices. And so what I want to do with, with that is to talk to you about the the things that will stand in our way, that will cause us to not make, the, the bad choices that we make that cause us not to thrive. And I call these the five C's. And this is not the C's like the body of water. This is the C apostrophe S. Just so you know, it'll probably be up there. But the five C's that keep us from thriving. Because chances are, if there's an area of your life that you're not thriving, if what I'm saying so far is resonating and you're thinking, yeah, I, I definitely could, I wouldn't, I wouldn't quantify my life as something where I'm thriving right now. Chances are it's one of these five things is what you're dealing with. At least one, maybe two, three, four. Okay. So I want to go through them because I believe if we expose them, we can get freedom from them. Amen. 
So the first one is complaining. The first C that keeps us from thriving is complaining. Now, complaining is a big deal. It, it, is the, it, is, it is in our nature to complain. Nobody has to be taught how to complain. Oh, you're not complaining right. You need to, you need to say it like this, you know? My little kids, as soon as they knew how to say words, knew how to complain with their words. The beauty is you don't even have to use words to complain, do you? We don't even have to use words. We can complain without speaking a word in our heart. You know, you've probably heard the, the story of the little kid that was running around being disobedient and the dad made him sit down and stop. And the kid didn't want to, but the dad forced him to sit down. And the kid sat down in the chair and he looked at his dad and he said, well, I may be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. <laughs> How many times do we do that in our life? You know, like I, you might be mature enough to not say what you're feeling because you, you know enough to know that you don't want to spread that, that negativity. But on the inside, you're still, you're, you're stewing. You're standing on the inside and you're, you're venting and complaining and, and uh, your attitude towards something is just that, why is this happening to me? Why does this kind of stuff always happen to me? Nothing good ever happens to me. No matter how hard I try, I can't seem to get ahead. I mean, these are phrases you hear all the time from people. And complaining and thriving can never coexist. Can never coexist. Complaining will push thriving right out the window like that. But that's a choice we make. It's a choice we make to complain. Some of us are more drawn by our nature to complain than others. I get that. Some people have, they, they have kind of a propensity to be negative. You have to work a little harder than the rest of us. But the, the Bible's clear in Romans 8, what Paul just said, that if you set your mind on the things of the Spirit, you can thrive. And complaining gets in the way of that. Let me read you a verse in, uh, in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4. Now, I, I love James, but he, he tells it like it is, let me tell you. And uh, he does not pull any punches. In James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, this doesn't say a word about complaining, but, but what I want to say to you about this verse is that, you know, you've heard, Paul, you've heard James say, like, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. You know, you read that first sentence and you think, Okay, well, how do I do that? Because no matter how hard I try, I'm not going to be joyful when I just lost my job. You know, not on my own, I'm not going to be able to. But then he gives us the key to it. He says, because perseverance must finish its work so that you will be mature and complete. Now, what that tells me is that perseverance, that word there is sometimes translated as patience, but it's an active patience. It's, a it's more of an endurance is what that word literally means. And so what, what he's saying there is that perseverance is actually doing a work in your trials. There's, there's something happening that you may not even notice when you're going through trials. But what it's doing is it's building that perseverance. And it says in that verse that perseverance has to finish its work. That tells me that there's an end to it. The finish means the end. You hit the finish line, the race is over. So perseverance must finish its work so that you will be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So that tells me that when I'm going through a situation that I don't like, whatever it is, if I will allow the Lord to, to pers help me to persevere through that, and persevering is not complaining while you're doing it. Complaining will actually hinder perseverance in your life. It, it'll, it'll make you backtrack. It, it is, it'll breed negativity. That's not patiently persevering. That's the opposite of that. So, but if I will persevere, I can know, even though I may not sense it or see it, I can know that when perseverance finishes its work, I'm going to get victory over that trial. I'm going to be able to step over the finish line of that trial and it's going to be in my rearview mirror and I'm going to be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Anybody here want to be mature and complete, not lacking? Man, I know I do. 
But we have to be willing to go through those trials with joy, not complaining, because when we do, we see that perseverance will finish its work. I want to help perseverance along past the finish line. Whatever I got to do to help perseverance get there, I want to do it. And that's such a beautiful promise from God's word that, you know what, your trial is going to end, but you can help it along, but complaining is going to slow the process. And if we will walk through it with joy, like the word says, we can know that we're going to be mature. It almost makes you want to say, okay, go on, bring on the trials. I'm ready for more of this. I want more maturity. Now, I'm not there yet. Some of you might be. I don't, I don't ask for trials, but I don't resent them when they come. The more mature, the older I get, the more I don't resent it because I know God's doing a work in me. And there's no place for me to complain. The second one is comparing. Now, comparing is something that will absolutely hinder you from thriving because all you're doing, you find yourself just chasing after somebody else. You're just trying to live up to somebody else. Uh, uh, Pastor Steve talked about this last week about your identity in Christ. And that's really what, compare, what, what beats comparing or what causes you to be able to defeat comparing yourself to others in life is knowing who you are in Jesus. It's really that simple. Once you, once you get a revelation of who you are in him, there's no more need to compare anymore. You know, and we have things in our culture now that are, that are uh, uh, perpetuating people living and comparing themselves to others. Social media is a wonderful tool, beautiful thing, can be used for the glory of God. But it's also used for the glory of the devil too. And it causes us sometimes to compare ourselves. We see somebody posting their stuff on Facebook and, you know, everybody's always putting their best face forward on social media. You know, I've never read a post where somebody said, yeah, I just had a really bad fight with my wife tonight. I guess I'm sleeping on the couch. (laughs) Nobody does that. Amazing. You know, it's like nobody's ever had a fight and had to sleep on the couch. Of course they do. They just don't let you see that. What they show you is a thousand pictures of their vacation on the beach. And you look at their pictures and you go, man, didn't they just have a vacation a month ago? What's wrong with us? Why can't we ever go on vacation? We can't afford that. And you, and you start to compare yourself. You start to almost, you get kind of jealous sometimes. You think, man, I don't, why can't I live that life? When in reality, that person there, you know, they might, who knows? They might've went into, they might've maxed out credit cards going on that vacation. You don't know. But what we do is we find ourselves comparing ourselves to each other when really there's no place for that either because that's not going to help you thrive. It's just going to keep you back. It's going to, it's going to beat you down, make you uh, um, want to be more like other people and want to compete with them. Keeping up with the Joneses is the worst stinking thing we can ever do as Christians, trying to keep up with anybody else. When I got the revelation about 16, 17 years ago of who I am in Christ, my days of comparing and trying to keep up with anybody were over. And that's a very, very freeing thing when we can live our life and be, be the, the beauty of when we know who we are in Christ and we stop comparing ourselves, is you can actually genuinely be happy for other people. It's a beautiful thing. I know some of you, I know you're sitting here thinking, it's really hard for me to be happy for others. When I hear even siblings, even relatives, you know, the sibling rivalry is a very real thing. And I was saying in the first service, you know, my brother, uh, he, he's got a construction company and really, really well. And for years, you know, I had my building company and uh, I always made more money than him. So it was easier for me. I never had to worry about rivalry because I was always making more money. But then I gave up that and now I'm in ministry and my brother's business has taken off like crazy. And he's, he's making more money he's ever made in his life. And we were just down in Florida for a wedding for my nephew. And we went out to eat one night and I looked across the table from my brother and I said, I just want you to know, I could not be prouder of you for what's going on in your life and how the Lord's blessing you and your business. And I said, I hope that you become a millionaire. And if you do, I will be the first one in line to shake your hand. And that's a beautiful thing because I know I meant it from my heart and, and I could not be more excited for him. And it's because I don't have to compare myself to him. It's not a, it's not a contest, but, it, but if we do that, it'll keep us from thriving in our life. 
Okay, so the third one is contempt. I know nobody in this room has any contempt, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. Okay? That's actually a joke. That's something a lot of us deal with. Because what, what, the way contempt manifests in our life, if you're not familiar with that word, it's just it's bitterness, uh, being disgruntled, um, being frustrated, thinking things are beneath you. Um, a lot of times it manifests in unforgiveness. You know, if, if, if contempt comes when there's somebody in your life that's hurt you or a situation that you've been hurt and you just can't forgive, you can't let it go. And so, uh, so you, you end up just living with contempt. Well, contempt and thriving cannot coexist either. Absolutely cannot coexist. Now, you may think, you might think, you know, there's, there's certain people in your life that you just don't like and you, you've just choose, chosen to kind of try to ignore them and try to stay focused over here. And you can look happy and enjoy things in life, but that's all temporary. Because it's not true thriving the way that God has called us to thrive. Because when you have contempt in your life, it will squash the thriving aspect, the thriving nature of who you are and who God's designed you to be. Uh, in uh, Jeremiah 29, 7, I read this verse earlier, but I want to read it again. It says, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. This is the word of the Lord to the children of Israel. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So the children of Israel got taken into Babylon and they wake up every morning reminded of the fact that they're not at home. They're in a place where they don't want to be, where they got captured and it was humiliating and they were carried off and carted off and all their possessions were left behind. And they're being reminded of that every day, all day long. And, and instead of sitting there being, being uh, bitter and having a terrible attitude towards the Babylonians, God very specifically says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Not just for you in the city, but of the actual city. Speak, uh, pray for the peace and prosperity of the city and then pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you will also prosper. How about that? Do we, ever, do we ever try that in our lives? That area in our life that we have some contempt, maybe if it's a person that we, we, we've not forgiven because they've hurt us so badly, to, to actually try to pray for that person. God actually says here that if you, will pray for, if you will pray for your Babylon, whatever your Babylon is, if you will pray for it, that it prospers, you too will prosper. It's pretty, pretty simple math to me. They prosper, I prosper. That's a, I'll take that deal. And the beauty of it is, and, and I believe God's heart in this, it's almost like he's being a little sneaky here because the thing is, when you pray for someone or something, it's impossible for you to stay contemptuous towards it because God changes your heart because what you're doing is you're getting yourself in the presence of God and you start to see God's heart for that person or that situation. And so your heart starts to change. And the next thing you know, you start praying for prosperity for it just because you know you're supposed to. Next thing you know, you're praying for it, really wanting them to prosper. And God will help you prosper in the midst of that because he calls us to forgive, to not have contempt in our life, to always be forgiving. You know, I, I feel like I talk about it every time I get on the stage and forgive me if it's, uh, if it's something I say too much, but I believe so wholeheartedly in forgiveness and, and how unforgiveness can hold us back in life because of the principle of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. Jesus said, if we do not forgive our brother for the little debt they owe us compared to the debt that he forgave us of, that he's going to release the tormentors in our life. It's very, very clear in Matthew 18. And if you read that and you still decide, I'm not going to forgive this person for what they did to me, I'm very, very scared for you because there is absolutely no place in the Christian life for contempt. When we understand what Jesus did for us and when you got saved, you had to understand what he did for you or else you couldn't receive salvation. So when you understand what he did for us after what we did to him, the huge debt that he paid for us because we couldn't pay it ourselves and we can't forgive this little debt in comparison to the debt he forgave us. I'm not saying which, what happened to you is little. Some people have gone through some really traumatic stuff in life. 
But Jesus is saying, you still don't have the right not to forgive them. And if you do, I actually remove my blessing and I release the tormentors. Some of us are tormented in our life because we refuse to forgive. That's a scary thing. And, and it says in Matthew 18, it says, it's going to stay that way until you pay back what, you're, what you owe, which is forgiveness. And so torment and thriving are two opposite words, right? If you're tormented, you're definitely not thriving. But it's, it's, a, it's a simple solution. Now, I'm not saying it's easy to forgive all the time, but it's a simple solution that when we choose to forgive, we start to pray for that person. We will see, we pray for them to prosper. We'll also prosper, but we'll prosper because we'll receive the blessing of God back on us and the tormentors will be gone. And that's a beautiful thing for each and every one of us. Amen. So no contempt. Amen. Fourth is control. And I'll move quickly here. Even though control, being controlling is something we can preach a series on easily. Because this is something that, that many, many people struggle with. Many people struggle with control. It's one of the biggest hindrances to thriving in our lives. And the majority of control in our lives is, is rooted in fear and anxiety. A lot of us deal with fear and anxiety. And the, the, the manifestation of that in our life oftentimes is to control. Because we feel like you could, that, that fear might have come from something that happened to you in your life. And so you feel, you, you feel like you have to control situations around you so that whatever that was doesn't happen again. And so we manipulate people around us. We control people around us. We're passive aggressive in trying to control situations so that we don't have, so that we don't have to uh, let go and worry. It, 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 we feel like it quenches some of that fear and worry in our life, helps us not to have to deal with those situations that may come about if we don't control people around us. And it is the polar opposite of what the Christian faith is, of what the Word of God tells us to do. The Word of God is very clear about us surrendering ourselves to God, to giving ourselves, to letting go. Walking in freedom is the opposite of control. And that's what we're called to. True freedom comes when we let go and when we surrender. It's the opposite of what, you know, what the world would say. You know, in a war, if you surrender in a war, a lot of times they take you prisoner. You become a prisoner of that, of that army. But in the, in the Christian walk, it's the exact opposite. When we surrender, we become free. We become free of everything because the burden's not on us anymore. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12 and uh, verse 9, he talks, he says that uh, God tells Paul that my, your strength is made, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Or I would, I could even add to that instead of weakness, I could say his strength is made perfect in our letting go and not controlling our lives and the people in our lives. That's where his strength comes in. It's the craziest thing. It goes against all of our practical knowledge and our fleshly knowledge that the world gives us to say literally that we have to be weak so that we can be strong. It doesn't make any sense. But we understand the principle of God and who he is, it makes perfect sense. He's saying, listen, as long as you're strong in yourself, you're limiting what I can do in you and through you because I'm not gonna force myself on you. That's not the kind of God we serve. He's saying, if you will be weak, then you will see the power of God manifested in your life. But if we, and I'll say it again in a different way, but when we control, he's limited by what he can do in our lives. But when we stop controlling and we let go, then we see the power of God moving in our lives. Some of us are not able to thrive in life because we're not willing to give up control of certain areas. And it only takes one area in our life to control that can, cause, that can limit the power of God in us and limit our ability to thrive. You may say, well, I only control my kids because I worry that, you know, they're going to get hurt, you know, because I've seen kids get kidnapped and hurt. And, and uh, there's, not, there's nothing wrong with putting parameters around your kids. But you know the difference between control and, and parenting and discipline. 
And if you're, you're controlling situations in your life, you are limiting the power of God in your life. It's very simple deduction. And I'm, again, I'm not, it's simple. I'm not saying it's easy. Living this life of letting go is not easy. We have to do it constantly. I feel like I have to do it sometimes every 10 minutes, you know? But we have to live that out if we really want to thrive in our life because control gets in the way of that. Amen. The enemy will tell you that you have to control things or things will go bad for you. That's one of the, that's one of the, the most uh, effective lies of the enemy in our life is that you have to control it because if, if you don't control it, it's going to go bad. Somebody's going to mess it up. You know, if you want it done right, you got to do it yourself. Those are, those are lies of the enemy that he would want to use to cause us to not see the power of God. And serving God is not about getting him to fix all of our problems. You know, I'm not saying if you let go, all of a sudden all your problems are just going to melt away. It's, but serving God is about trusting in his faithfulness and who he is. And that even though I'm going through Babylon, I'm, going, I'm living in this situation I don't like, I can trust that he's faithful. And that there will be an end to this trial. When, when perseverance finishes its work, there's going to be an end to this. And I can trust him and I'm going to grow. I'm going to be mature. We need maturity in the church. Amen. Maturity and, and lacking nothing. That's what God called us to. That's his hope and desire for us. And then the last one is complacency. Complacency is a big hindrance to us really being able to thrive. This is the tendency to do when we find ourselves in a less than desirable situation. I'm sure, it doesn't say this in the Bible, but I'm sure most of the Israelites, when they were sent to Babylon, I'm sure they were very complacent. I'm sure they sat there and thought, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to do anything to help this city or this area grow or prosper or anything. I'm going to do the bare minimum to not get in trouble. And you may find yourself feeling that way too at work. Like you don't, you don't like your situation. You think, I'm just going to do the bare minimum. I'm just going to do enough just to make sure I keep getting my paycheck. That's complacency. And, and the enemy will lull you into that if you allow him to. But you're never going to thrive in that. You're never going to thrive being in a place of complacency. That's why Jeremiah told him, don't be complacent. You know, while you're in that situation you don't want to be in, where you're displaced, build houses, plant gardens, get married, give your kids in marriage, increase, do not decrease. That's what he's telling us to do in that situation. Don't be complacent. Complacency will just cause you to kind of continually slouch lower and lower and lower until you don't have any hope for anything. Because that's exactly what that does in our life. Look at Jeremiah 29, 13. This is two verses after Jeremiah 29, 11, obviously. He says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. All of your heart. It's so important that we go after, God's saying here, you'll find me if you seek me, but you got to do it with all your heart. That's the opposite of complacency. Amen. Complacency says, I'm going to sit back and see what God does. Amen. But Jeremiah says, you'll, you'll find him if you seek him, if you seek him with your, all your heart. Amen. That's what that, that perseverance in James 1 that I was talking about, that's what that is. That's not a complacent, patient, waiting, sit back, kicking back with your feet up and, and sipping on a sweet tea. That perseverance is going after it. That's the one that's working. It says it has to finish its work in your life. And that's the opposite of complacency. Complacency and thriving will never coexist either. Never. And it, it'll, it's a lie to think that I'm just going to sit back and wait. I'm just going to wait on God. And God's just going to fix this and finish this all up for me. And it's all going to be great. Now, of course, there, we have to wait on God. That, I'm not talking about like the, the actual uh, trying to make things happen. But it's the attitude of just like, I'm not doing anything. I'm going to do the minimum. Just wait. You know, I'm going to do the minimum in my Christian walk. I'm going to. I'm going to go to church once a month and, and uh, I'm going to try to say a prayer before my meals and hope that God doesn't get mad at me. You know, sometimes we have that attitude. 
When really God's saying, no, I don't want you to be complacent in your walk with me either, because that's the, what's going to help you thrive is the closer you get to me, the more you're going to see my character, the more it's going to be in you. And the more you're going to be able to walk it out, the more you're going to be able to see me in your life, working in your situations. Amen. So what I, what I want to just say to you today is that God has called us to thrive in our Babylon, whatever that is. Only you know what Babylon is in your life today. Like I said before, it could be financial. You could be in a place of finances that you don't even know how you got yourself there. And you, you're asking God to deliver you. Like, God, help me. Help me, help me get through this. And, and God hasn't just completely just, you know, sent you a check to eliminate all your debt. But what he's saying, he's saying, I might not t- completely deliver you from this situation right now, today. But what I'm telling you is you can thrive in the midst of it. You can increase and not decrease. And you can trust that he is working in that. It may take 70 years to get out of that Babylon. But he's, he, the, the location is irrelevant. It's about the fact that you can thrive in any location you're in. That's his plan, his hope, and his call for you. So I'm going to ask you to stand as I close today. Like uh, the worship team and the prayer team to come up. I want to share one more thing with you. If you just indulge me for about three more minutes. What I believe we need to do as, as the church, as believers, is we need to see through the eyes of a lion. Now I'm going to explain what I mean by that. Because I know that sounds incredibly weird and random. But it's going to make sense in a minute. We need to see through the eyes of a lion. They're actually going to put a, a picture of a lion up there. So you can kind of get a visual of what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's an impressive beast there, isn't it? Considered the king of the jungle, the best hunter there is. The eyes of a lion are very unique. They are, um, their vision is six to eight times stronger than a human's. They can see six to eight times further and, and broader and, and, and just clearer and better than humans. And their, their pupils, those yellow pupils actually can dilate. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, not the yellow, the, the, the pupil part can actually dilate three times its normal size when it's in the dark so that it can see so well in the dark. The dark is no, not an issue for a lion if it is in the darkness. It's not an issue. If you and a lion were in a room with no light, you would see nothing and the lion would see dinner. All right? I don't recommend that, by the way. But if you even notice, see the white stripes under its eyes? All lions have that white stripe. That, that white stripe is there purposely. It, it actually serves the opposite effect of the, black, the blackout the baseball players use to keep the glare in their eyes. The white actually draws it in, draws more light into their eyes so they can even see better. So even the slightest bit of light will go in there and reflect, and it can see very, very well no matter what situation it's in. And uh, I would like to encourage you today, I think there's a principle we can take from this, that uh, God will want us to focus on things that are unseen. Not to just focus on the things that are right around us, but to have perspective, to have vision, to see out beyond our immediate situation, whatever the Babylon is in your life. We're not called to just look at what we're we're dealing with today, what's right in front of us. He wants us to see, he wants us to have, have vision for the fact that he has a plan and a future for us. He has a hope and a future for us. He wants us to see that, but we have to be willing to look and not just focus on our surroundings, our immediate surroundings, but be able to look out further. We need to be able to see like a lion sees. You know, Paul said in uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 4.18, he says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We fix our eyes on what is unseen. That's very difficult to do to to focus on what you can't see. 
but we got, we got tools to help us. We got this. We got the Holy Spirit living in us. We have, we have the access to his throne room through prayer. We can focus on the unseen because of what he's done for us. And in John 8, 12, beautiful, beautiful verse that encapsulates everything. It says, Jesus speaking here, red letters. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He is the light of the world. He is that light that we need to let into our eyes. And I'm here to tell you today, church. I'm here to tell you today that the closer we get to Jesus, the more light we can see. The more light we'll have, the better vision we will have to see what, is, what he's doing in our life. To be able to deal, to go through our trials with joy. To consider it all joy when we go through stuff we don't like. But we have to get close to Jesus. He is that light. We don't have that white stripe under our eye to help us. So we got to get closer to the light than the lion does. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So let's draw close to him. Let's, let's pull closer to him because he is the one that will sustain us. We have, we have everything he's promised us, but we have to know how to use the tools he's given us. Otherwise, those tools are just sitting in our garage collecting dust and it's not doing anything for us. But praise God, we don't have to do that. Even if it's been collecting dust in your garage for 20 years, it's always just one step away from getting it and using it. it never, God's tools never get rusty. They never erode. They're never, never outdated. They're not made of plastic. They don't break. They're always there, always there for us, 24-7, 365. But it's up to us to use them and to, and to claim them as our own. So I want to encourage you today as we pray, we're going to, Steve's going to play a song, we're going to sing, but you can come to the altar and you can pray by yourself or you can come to one of these prayer leaders. Just if, if any one of these five C's, if any one of them resonated with you, you said, yeah, I, I kind of struggle with that a little bit. I'd encourage you to come up and just release it to the Lord. I believe there's freedom in this house today. Just release it to him. He doesn't judge us. He, I, I've dealt with all five of those at one time or another, and there's probably still times I deal with at least one of them. Uh, none of us are perfect. We're all on this journey together, but we're accountable for what we know. And I believe with all my heart, I, I don't know how many sermons I've preached, about you know, a thousandth as many as Pastor Bowen, but I feel like I've preached a lot of them lately. And I could tell you this message, God gave it to me in like an hour. It was early this week. I think it was Monday. It, just, it was just that quick. Sometimes I have to labor through getting a message, you know, and Saturday night I'm like, God, there's got to be a message somewhere. But this week, early in the week, it was like, there it was. Oh, it's Tuesday morning because George came into my office and I was there for about an hour before he got there. I said, man, I got my sermon for Sunday. And I felt like the Lord showed me like people in this church need this. You guys need this, but God wants to set us free. That's why he gave this to me. So I encourage you today. You don't have to come to the altar. You can deal with it in your seat. By all means, feel the freedom to come and give this to the Lord. So I'm gonna pray for us. God, I thank you so much for today. I thank you for this word. Lord, I thank you that your desire is that we would thrive. God, what a, what a humbling thing to think that our heavenly father wants us to, to flourish in our life. We're, 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 such, we're so ill-equipped. We're so unworthy of your blessings. But Lord, I thank you that you just pour them out on us. Thank you that you did all the work so that we could flourish in our life and draw close to you, God. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room today that's dealing with any of these issues, any of these things that are causing them to not flourish and thrive in their life, Lord, or anybody that's watching online or listening today on a podcast, wherever they may be, 
God, that you would speak to their hearts and, and help set us free today, Lord. Help us to let go of the things that we're holding on to that are keeping us from really thriving in life. Help us, Lord, to let go. We need your strength to even help us let go because we are so strong in our flesh sometimes, Lord. But we want to have our minds set on the things that the Spirit does, not on the things of the flesh. We trust you today, Lord, to do that in our lives. We trust you, God. Thank you, Jesus. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you as you pray today.